Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hallelujah. Is it on? Can you hear me? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Remain standing for a moment. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we come to you tonight, Lord God, knowing that you are the one, the true, the only God. Father God, amidst the sea of despair, Lord God, and of the myriad voices chattering this vain thing and that thing, we know there is one voice that speaks above all. There is one who stands above all. There is one Lord, one God, one Christ. And to Him tonight we give all glory, honor, and praise. And Lord, we believe tonight that You have something to say to us. So we ask you to speak. We ask you, Lord God, to let your voice go forth. Let every ear be open. Let every heart be fertile ground. Oh God, hide me behind the cross and make my tongue tonight the pen of a ready writer that it may write your message upon the hearts of the hearers so that the trajectory of our lives may be changed. And glory may come to your kingdom. In Christ Jesus we ask this. Amen. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. Thank you, choir. Um, before I officially get started, I'm going to do like sort of a pre-message to my message. I actually want to thank, I think it was Pastor Paul who was up here. Um, I struggled with the message God gave me because you have a really great theme for this event. And I could really preach on Matthew 10, 7 for three days. And I was set to do that. I was really excited about it too. Go and preach the kingdom. And I have a message simply called preach the gospel. And I'm like, let's do that. And God said, no. And the message he gave me is sandwich. You'll see this in a moment between two verses that do not make 
Until he showed me what he wanted to say, it made no sense in the world. God, why should these be together? I could preach this one. I could preach this one. I do not see them together. And when God gave me the message, I struggled whether over the question of whether it was right for this house. Not whether the message was right. Whether it was right for this house. And Pastor, you confirmed that, so thank you. Um, I also want to, in a way, apologize to Brother Sobe. I know I kind of put him on the spot. I am not big on introductions. I, I don't like that. I think that we live in an age where we have put too much confidence in men. And I've been to speak at places and they want to talk about where I went to college and my education and my upbringing. And listen, none of that is important tonight. None of that matters tonight at all. At the end of the day, what matters is that God has something to say. Now, I do understand there is an admonition from the Lord. Know those who labor among you. But there's also an admonition that henceforth we're to know no one after the flesh. We're to be known by the Spirit. See, all those things, any accolades I can bring up, my ordination, any of that, that's all flesh. But there's a Spirit that abides here. It's a spirit that lets me know that when I come here, I'm home. I mean that very seriously. I don't say that everywhere I'm invited to preach. But I know when I come here, I've been here several times, I'm home when I come here. Because the spirit that abides here is the spirit of the Lord. And the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. So I can just be me and you can just be you. Because at the end of the day, it's sort of as Jesus put it. Who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters? These who do the work of my father. And so we're just brothers and sisters here today. And that's all good and well. That makes me very welcome in this house. Um, you may feel differently because the message is one that should really challenge. Let me start off by giving you the two verses well, no, I, I want to also talk about something Pastor said. He was talking about being almost shocked by some of the things that are happening in Kerala right now. Please, don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean to be offensive. But I'm not shocked at all about anything I hear coming out of Kerala. I'm not shocked when I turn on my television and I hear about how they're rounding up ch Christian children in Nigeria and burning them. I am not shocked to hear that the entire Christian population of Syria, which used to range in the millions, is now down to less than 900 people. I'm not shocked at all. When I have gone to visit Europe and seen church after church after church after church turned into nightclubs and mosques, I'm saddened, but I am not shocked. Because I know what God's word says. Even when I see what's been happening in this country, and see what's happening to the church in this country is harder to see. I don't want to get political. The current administration has sort of given the church a reprieve where the government is no longer against us. And because of that, people, because we see with the eyes of flesh, not with the eyes of the spirit, we think that everything, at least in America, is okay. The church here is okay. I'm here to tell you tonight, we are not okay. I'm here to encourage you tonight. I'm here to call you tonight. I'm here to commission you tonight 
to contend for the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, whether you go to Kerala or any other part of South Asia, India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, whether you travel to China, whether you go even in China, and people say, well, the gospel's always been under attack in China. That's not true. For the last 10 years, the church of China in China has been the largest, fastest growing church on planet Earth. Within the last year, the church has turned inward on itself. Church members are being paid exorbitant amount of money to turn in their pastors and turn in each other's. It is fulfillment of scripture. A man's enemies will be those of his own house. And the church has turned in upon itself in China. And we see that happening in other parts of the world. So I'm not shocked when I see it. I'm shocked that there's not an appropriate response to it. Those of you who are, and that's almost everyone in the room, who come from India, your roots are in Kerala. When you hear about what's going on, you're shocked, but are you moved to action? James put it very simply this way. Faith, if it has no works, is empty, it's void, it's useless, it's meaningless. If I tell you I believe in Christ, but I don't live a life that shows you I believe in Christ, my belief is empty. And while we're not supposed to judge each other's salvation, if I tell you I'm saved, but I don't act saved, and I don't talk saved, and I don't read my Bible, and I don't pray, and my kids are a mess, and my marriage is a mess, then guess what? There's a good chance I lied when I said I was saved. And if I say I love the church of Jesus Christ, and I'm not moved to tears, and I'm not moved to prayer, and I'm not moved to preaching, and I'm not moved to making changes in my home, and my community, and my life, then I lie to my God when I tell him I love his people. There is something very dramatic going on. So let me give you the foundation for my message tonight. There are two verses. Um, both of them spoken by our Lord. And they do connect with the theme of tonight. Go out and pro proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. But I want to focus tonight on John 3.3 3 and Matthew 11.12. In John 3.3, 3, and most of us know this. Please, if you're a Christian, you've got to know John chapter 3. You have to know John chapter 3. I am shocked because I'll meet Christians who don't know John 3.16. It is the foundation of everything we are. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. But in John 3, 3, as Nicodemus came to speak with Christ, Jesus makes an awesome statement to Nicodemus. He says to him, Verily, verily, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Forget about him being in the kingdom. Forget about him serving the kingdom. Forget about him knowing the kingdom. You can't see the kingdom. That's why, I'll be honest, the one thing that I am shocked by, the one thing that does abhor me, is the current culture of the church growth movement. Because we extend so much energy at appeasing unsaved carnal people and making them comfortable in the kingdom of God and thinking how somehow that grows the kingdom and we don't understand. They can't see the kingdom until they get born again. 
But we don't want to talk about born again anymore. We don't want to talk about salvation anymore. We don't want to talk about a new creation anymore. We don't want to talk about a new birth because all that is messy. And any woman in the house who's born children, and any man who had the guts to be in the room with his wife when she was bearing children, and I've since been there since the last time I was in this house, I've seen what that's like. It is messy business giving birth. Birth is not a simple thing. And while it is wonderful, and while it is beautiful to bring children into this earth, the act of it is not pretty. Whether it's C-section or natural, it is not a pretty sight. And all the married people who have been there should say amen. You've seen that. And in the same way, birthing people into the kingdom, see, we've made it simple and clean. We've sterilized it. I'm going to preach a really happy message that makes everybody really happy and makes everyone to be cool with what I'm doing. And then I'm going to tell everyone, hey, if you're the cool people, come to the front. And all the cool people are going to come to the front. And I'm going to say, hey, just repeat what I say. And they're going to repeat what I say. And I'm going to say, hey, they're safe. Come on, ladies, those of you who gave birth know it didn't happen that way. Some of you were like my wife. Forgive me, honey, if you're listening right now. By the way, no, she's alive. She may be listening because I'm actually broadcasting this all over the world while I speak. Um, so hopefully she and the kids are listening from home. Forgive me for talking about this. But she was one of those women who were like, oh, man, I'm going to do the natural birth thing. I don't want an epidural. I don't want anything. This is gonna, I got this. After five hours... The song began to change a little. After 17 hours in labor, her, the song changed a lot. And it was not pleasant, and it was not easy. Was it worth it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, definitely it was. But it's dirty business giving birth. And birthing people into the kingdom is also dirty business. Because if you're going to birth people into the kingdom, you've got to be willing to go where they are. You've got to be going, willing to go to the unsaved and bring them into the house. You've got to understand that they're not going to know how to act, and they're not going to know what to say, and they're not always going to look so nice, and they're not always going to dress the part, and they're not always going to do what they're supposed to do. And then even in the process of birthing them, it's not repeat a prayer after me. A man's heart has to be changed. His life has to be changed. He needs to be made to see that he is a sinner. He needs to be broken down and brought to realize you have nothing to offer God. That's why I'll be honest. I hate a lot of, and I know it sounds horrible, I hate a lot of modern day worship. All right, choir, please don't take offense. I hate a lot of modern day worship, and I thank you. Pick the right songs. Because otherwise, yeah, those of you who know me, I'm bold enough, I would have told you you did this wrong. Because a lot of modern day worship is all about, look at me, and I'm so good, and I'm so wonderful, and I know why God chose me, and oh my God, I'm such a blessing to the kingdom. No, you're not. Do you know what God saw in you that he saved you? He saw your dirt and your filth and your helplessness. He knew that there was nothing you could do for yourself. That baby, ladies, when it was inside of you, if you didn't push, it would have died in there. You worked. You sweat. In some cases, you bled. Your health suffered, some of you, to bring your physical children into the world. And the same is true. What did Jesus go through to bring people into the kingdom? 
It wasn't neat and it wasn't nice. And we live in an age where churches don't even want to have crosses in them because the cross is offensive. But I'm here to tell you, if there is no cross, there is no Christ. If there is no death, there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, the Bible itself says everything we believe is in vain. We might as well just go home and watch TV and not waste our time. But if the cross is real and his suffering was real, and his death was real. And the resurrection is real. And we have everything to boast about. The other verse I want to focus this on, and you'll see, I want to wrap these together, but you'll see why it confused me when God brought them to me. Because see, I could, I could preach a message. On unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But then he brought me to Matthew eleven twelve, where it, say, it says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. By the way, those of you who are really good at English, or my college students, did you catch the what seems like the grammatical inconsistency of that? Since the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffers present tense. It should have been past. In fact, in Greek, the tense it's written in is a progressive perpetual present tense, meaning to this day, even right now while I speak, the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And so I want to talk a little bit about the kingdom. I want to talk a little bit about being born into the kingdom, and I want to talk a little bit about fighting for the kingdom. I want to talk about this violence. And unless you, unless you get me wrong, because I know in light of the things that have been in the news this week, it seems like a really inappropriate message. In fact, I'll be honest, that's part of what I wrestled with God about. God, in light of the shootings in Texas and Ohio, in light of what's coming through the news about what's going on in certain parts of India, in certain parts of the Middle East, in light of what's happening, are you sure this is what you want me to speak about? He said, if you open my mouth, I will fill it. And I said, so I'll speak. So the first thing I want to point out to you, number one, is that the kingdom of God is no longer at hand. It's here. See, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew, go ahead of me and let them know the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? They were to go to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel and let them know Jesus is coming. He's just down the road. He's on his way. John the Baptist preached in that spirit. But if we've been born again, then the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us right now. And if we are his hands and we are his body, then the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in this building. The kingdom of God is in your homes. The kingdom of God is in your schools. The kingdom of God is in your jobs. And no one can legislate the kingdom of God out. That's why there's violence against the people of God. Because you cannot legislate the kingdom out. You can pass laws telling us we can't speak. You can pass laws, but everywhere I go, the indwelling of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell with me. And if I have been born again, that indwelling bodily changes the atmosphere in which I live. I've had situations with unsaved family members, and sadly enough, even with some saved family members, where they have been violently angry with me. I remember some conversations where they've said, no, but you know, the problem is you're so judgmental and you make me feel so uncomfortable and they're yelling and screaming and, I'm, and I let them say their piece. 
And when they're done, tell me one thing I said that was judgmental. Well, right, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything about your life. I didn't say anything about how you live. I didn't say anything about your choices. Well, you know, it, the things you do. What did I do? Well, and it comes down to the fact you're here. And I tell them, you know what, that's called conviction. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but if the Holy Spirit lives in me, then where I go, the Spirit of the Lord is present. And in the presence of the Holy Spirit, sinners are convicted. Amen. And some of you are looking at me like, that's never happened to me. Are you full? I mean, you call this Pentecostal Youth Fellowship. Is that a title or is that something you're really living? And some of you just made the error in your head. See, you were, in your head, you just quoted for me the date you got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's irrelevant to me. It's irrelevant to me because the reality is our job as Christians is to pray ourselves full daily and then minister ourselves empty. Whether that's in your home to your wife and kids, gentlemen, or whether that's at your job, or whether that's at your school, or whether that's in ministry. You should end the day empty. So empty it's hard to go to bed. You just have to drag yourself into it. And you lay on your pillow, and you thank the Lord for what he's done this day, and you ask him, Lord, give me peace as I sleep, and when I wake, fill me again. That's Christian living. But see, we don't know that anymore. Because Christianity in America has become cultural. It's become what t-shirt you wear. It's become, you know, what, you know, emoji you have on your Instagram. But it hasn't become about how you live. It hasn't become about day to day. Because the day to day is difficult. The moment to moment is difficult. And we don't always get it right. A righteous man falleth, yea, seven times. But he keeps getting up over and over and over and over again. That's Christian living. And so Jesus said, go and prepare the kingdom. But in John 4, 3, he said, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In Romans 13, 1, the apostle Paul says, knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake from sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. In 2 Corinthians 6.12, he again says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of our salvation. In the book of Revelation, the great revelator John wrote the following. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuseth them before God day and night. Notice the accusation didn't stop. He, he accuses day and night, but he has been cast down. His power has been taken. He can say what he wants. He can accuse all he wants. The reality is, I am found innocent, not because of any great thing in me, except that the Holy Spirit lives in me, except that my God has redeemed me, except that God has saved me. And so the kingdom is now. And no, believe me, I'm not one of those get your best life now, kingdom now philosophers. I believe that that's all junk. 
That's garbage to me. Because the reality is our greatest reward awaits in heaven. But what is our job and what is the ministry that we have been given? I like the way it's put best in 2 Corinthians. Um, Oh, wow, why am I forgetting the verse right now? When it says, okay, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And this newness of life is from Christ who is in the world, reconciling the world to God and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul said that we are ambassadors for Christ. We have a job to do, saints. And this idea of heralding the kingdom of God is not just for the apostles. And no, it's not just for your pastor and it's not just for missionaries and the reality is every single one of you in the room is an evangelist on some level. You may not have been called to the full-time ministry of evangelism, but let me even tell you that. It took me years to figure this out. Full-time ministry is not what you think. We think you're in full-time ministry if you get a paycheck from the church. But here's the problem with that. And I'm not, listen, I'm not denigrating the ministry. All of paycheck weekly from the church means is that this is your job. This is your profession. Your calling takes you beyond that. Trust me, because there are men in pulpits all over the world. That's why the kingdom is suffering such horrible violence. Because there are men and women in pulpits who were never called to be there, but they know they can make some good money, so they're standing in a pulpit because they can tell a good joke and make us laugh for 15 minutes. Because they can tell two quick jokes and tell you something nice and then tell you how great you are and do some mental self-help and all of a sudden bring a crowd and everyone's, because listen, anyone will pay you money to tell them you're wonderful. That's what we all want. And these have made that worse. Parents, please hear me. You don't understand how bad the pressure on your kids is because of these phones. Research study after research study after research study has proven the addiction to social media is as strong or stronger than a heroin addiction. If I told you half the youth in this congregation were addicted to heroin, you would be calling Teen Challenge and you would start a program and you would say, not my son or daughter, the enemy's not going to kill them with those drugs, but I'm telling you, the addiction to this, the addiction to Instagram and Twitter is stronger than the addiction because what it does is it gives instant gratification. I wake up in the morning and I got 25 likes and that means I'm valuable. But what if I posted last night and I wake up and I don't have any likes? And what if people didn't like what I said? And they're so addicted to the need for instantaneous gratification and everyone telling them how wonderful and how great and how perfect and how awesome they are that we will change the gospel to make it more palatable people. As long as people will say, see, that's why you're my favorite preacher. That's why I like you better than other Christians. Because you don't make me feel bad about the things I'm doing. Listen, no, it's not our job to run around the world and judge everyone. We're supposed to love the sinners. We're supposed to love them into the kingdom. But part of love, and those of you who are parents know it, part of love is telling someone when they're wrong. Come on, is anyone in the room in the medical profession? Would it be a loving thing to do if someone came into your practice? You ran some tests and found out they had cancer. But see, cancer is a scary word. Cancer ruins lives. Just hearing cancer. 
Listen, even at my young stage at the game, I've been in at least two situations where doctors thought I had cancer. My wife was in a situation where they were convinced at one point she had ovarian cancer, then they were convinced that she had a tumor in her brain, then they were convinced that she had pituitary cancer, which, by the way, destroys every working system in your body. So I've been there. I know how scary that word is. But those doctors would be illegitimate if they ran those tests and then said, well, if I tell her that, she's going to feel bad. No, ma'am, you're wonderful. You're in great health. Keep doing what you're doing. But that's what the church has become. So we tell every sinner they're a saint, we tell every backslider, well, you know, you're just struggling. Everybody struggles. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not true. By the way, can I tell you the biggest fallacy that we've taught people in the church? Perfection is impossible. If perfection is impossible, Jesus lied because Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus never gave a command he couldn't fulfill. And by the way, just to prove it, I defy you. Find the sin of Daniel. Find one time Daniel sinned. One time Daniel doubted. One time Daniel denied the Lord. Listen, I thank God for David in the Bible and that God calls David a man after his own heart. It gives me hope. I fall. But I also thank God that men like Daniel, like Nehemiah, there are men and women in here where you'd, be, you'd have to lie to find their sin. Because they love God so much they wouldn't allow. What about Joseph? I mean, the greatest sin of Joseph is he wasn't sure if he could trust his brothers again. Is that really sin after what he'd been through? Which of us would, would, wouldn't have some fear and some doubt after what they did to him? Yet Joseph ran from every opportunity to stumble. And his answer was always, my God whom I serve. I wouldn't do it to him. So he wouldn't go with Potiphar's wife because my God whom I serve. And he wouldn't steal the money because my God whom I serve. And he wouldn't cheat or lie because my God whom I serve. And even when it came to prophecy, which we've made the biggest joke in the world, Believe me, the biggest way you can turn me off, walk up to me and introduce yourself as the prophet so-and-so. I don't want to know you anymore. Because 99.9% .9 of prophecy in the house of God today is either silly witchcraft, psychology, or a mixture of the two. Every prophecy is, I, I prophesy you're going to get a million dollars. You're going to do this. I've seen people ignorantly prophesy to people who are 300 pounds overweight. I prophesy by this time next year, you don't even need to diet. You'll be normal weight. No, you won't. You keep eating like you're eating, you'll be dead in two years. I'm not saying that to be hurtful. I'm saying it to be loving. That's why I'm doing everything I can to lose as much weight as I can. That's why I've dropped over 40 pounds in the last couple of months. Because the reality is, look, I can't stand in this pulpit and talk about sin when I stand here and look like a glutton. And that's the one sin we in the church won't touch. Don't touch fat people. We've got to have one sin we let go. But if we won't touch that, then what right do we have to touch the other sins that are in the flesh? Gluttony is no different than alcoholism. One is addicted to food, the other is addicted to wine. Well, but food, you can't live without food. And the person who's the alcoholic will argue, well, Jesus turned water into wine, it can't be all that. Do you see what I mean? 
And if I stand before him as a glutton, I can't tell him that his abuse of his alcohol is wrong because he's destroying the temple and I'm destroying mine too. I'm robbing God of his temple too. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get real. We can't proclaim a kingdom we're not fighting for. The kingdom is in disarray and that's why that first scripture. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it. And a lot of people in the house of God, and I'm not trying to be accusatory of anybody here, but a lot of people in the house of God cannot see the condition of the kingdom because they don't have a heart for the kingdom. What do I mean? Ezra, Nehemiah. And before this three days are up, I'm going to talk about them some more. Ezra was a man of God such that when he heard the kingdom was being rebuilt, he said, I must go and see it. Nehemiah was a man when he heard, okay, they're rebuilding the kingdom, things are happening, what's going on? And he heard the report. The kingdom's in disarray, the walls are down. Some of the fires of the Babylonians, 70 years later, are still burning. And he immediately wept and rent his clothes and went into mourning. Yet so few of us are mourning for the kingdom of God today because we don't see it. We don't see what's going on. We don't see what's going on when the greatest, you know, I'll tell you this, listen. And hopefully, well, no, let me just tell you. Listen, have you ever wondered about some of the powerful worship that's sort of mainstream right now? Young people, I know you know, and I'm not going to specifically name churches, that's not my job. Well, sometimes it is, but not tonight. Maybe it'll change in a few minutes. But some of you know who I'm talking about. There are certain churches. Oh, my, they have their reputation for worship, and the worship is amazing. Have you ever stopped listening to their worship and turned on any of their messages? Yes, oh, my God, it was so wonderful. I've had this discussion with the young people I work with at high school. It was so depressing to them. I really felt bad doing this to them. Because they're like, no, Torres, they're wonderful. So I said, okay, you too. Let's turn on. See, look at, shh, stop being caught up in emotion. Listen to what he just said. One of the senior pastors of one of the largest churches on planet Earth, their youth pastor, I'm sorry, just gave a message when he talked about the call. And, and, you know, he was talking about being church hurt. That's the big thing, because today, everything is better if you're a victim. Everyone wants to be a victim. So I'm church hurt. I'm going to church because I'm church hurt. He's going to church and treat me right. I was going to church, and they didn't like me, and they didn't ever say hi to me. And I remember Sister So-and-so, she was sitting next to me, and she didn't even say hi. Who cares? You came to church for her, or you came to church for Jesus? No, I came for Jesus, liar, because then you wouldn't have been offended that she didn't say hello. Just being real. Just being honest. So he talked about how her church already is, and he talked about how Jesus walked into the room, and everyone starts clapping. And Jesus held him and cried for half an hour and apologized. Because those ministers who hurt you, when they hurt you, I hurt you. I failed you. Can I tell you something? My Bible says that Jesus has never failed at anything he did. The only time that God ever repented of anything he did was in making us, because he knew the evil we would do, but when we saw our effect on one another, it said God repented that he had made man. The only time in the Bible that God felt bad about anything was his decision to give us complete free will. He knew he would send Christ. He hated watching the suffering we brought upon, upon one another. 
But to say that Jesus apologized because Jesus messed up and Jesus made a mistake, that's sacrilege. But every young person claps and every young person thinks it's great because he's popular. And so we don't notice that the biggest church in Manhattan that's only been there for like five or six years will say publicly time and again on Christian radio and Christian television and Christian newspapers, no, we believe in traditional marriage and da-da-da-da. Yet they just held a ceremony marrying two homosexuals and one of them was one of their ministers. But they believe in traditional marriage. And when they were cornered on it, their senior pastor, who won't ever put on a tie and doesn't ever dress right, because, you know, we're not old-fashioned like other people, gets up and says, well, you know, I don't think it's my place to judge anyone. So they cornered him and said, but is homosexuality a sin? Well, I, I would have to know your story first and where you came from, because here we're just about loving everyone. And they asked about several other sins. His answer was the same every time. Can I tell you something? I love homosexuals, alcoholics, drug addicts. I love messed up, broken people. Because I'm aware enough of how messed up I am that there but for the grace of God go I. I know that. And I also know that working with them is hard. But Part of my loving them. In fact, I'll never forget the first time this ever happened to me. It was a young man who was living that lifestyle. He was a mess. He was in a bad relationship. I counseled him. He got out of that relationship. Started another relationship, not changing his orientation. And he came up and asked me one day, just straight out. Mr. Torres. He was a student, so he calls me Mr. Torres. Mr. Torres. I ask you a weird question. I go, go, you know, dude, at this point, you've told me everything about your life. Look, we kind of have an open conversation. Tell me anything. What do you need to ask? And my students know. People who have ever worked with me know privately. In fact, it's one of the things that bothers my wife. I'm way too open a book. So if you ever ask me anything that's out of place, I will tell you, okay, I won't go there. But generally, I answer anything. So it's like, okay, I have a question. Person. I go, yeah, we got it. Do you really believe, you know, I know most people, dude, just spit out your question. Okay, homosexuality. Do you believe it's a sin? Do you believe before you can finish this question? I said, of course it's a sin. It goes against God and everything that God ordained. He was shocked. But you do realize what I am and when you help me, yeah. I love you. You came to me because you were in a bad relationship. I got you out of that relationship because it was bad. Yeah, but your advice also led me to a healthier relationship but still in that orientation. I said, that was not my intention. But if I gave you good advice that made you make better choices, those are still your choices. But now you're asking about your orientation. I'm trying to tell you, no, son. You cannot stand before God complete and keep doing what you're doing. Jesus loves you. And he died to empower you to stop doing what you're doing. And you don't have to give it up to come to Christ, but I guarantee you if you come to him, he will change you over time. Not because he sees you as bad. What you're doing is wrong. And he will not allow you to stay in it. And he was like, wow. I said, why are you surprised? He goes, well, A, I was shocked at your honesty, but B, even after you're saying that, I still feel like you love me. Of course I do. You see, brothers and sisters, our decision that we won't judge anything has rendered us powerless. Because we call everything right, 
then we become just like the world that calls evil good and good evil. Because we embrace everything and allow everything, then we've become just like the world. And we lose our right to speak from heaven when we twist God's word. One of the things that God warned me about, and I'll tell this to you, any of you young people might feel like you're called to ministry on some level one day. Most powerful thing I ever heard. God had spoken into my heart. I didn't understand exactly what he was saying, and then I heard a minister say it out loud. God has promised me, as long as I refuse to put words in his mouth, God will put his words in mine. But the day I put words in his mouth that are not his, he's done speaking through me. By the way, for anyone who wonders, that's why I'm so real when I'm in a pulpit or when I'm privately talking with you. That's why while I try to, you know, sort of cover it in love and I try to be loving and I'm very brutally honest. Because I know that the day I lie about what God said, he'll stop using me. He's done with me. Because once I lie in the name of God, what integrity have I left? What authority have I left? What more can I say? And so the kingdom of God today is under assault. The kingdom of God is in shambles because I've been to churches, believe me. My wife and I are suffering through this right now. For those of you who don't know, yes, I am an ordained minister. Yes, I pastor a church, but I do something really weird. My entire church exists online. Uh, only one or two people who are part of my church live in the New York area. So most of my nearest congregants are like thousands of miles away from me. At least hundreds. In fact, one of the biggest complaints I get, and I am so sorry to them, between my having three kids and working multiple jobs and all of this other stuff, I sometimes don't have time because our time schedule is so different. I have a brother who's probably listening right now. In Africa, he and I have been trying to set up a meeting, but come on, man, it's daytime there when it's nighttime here, and catching up has been hard. But, okay, yes, I have this ministry. No, it's not here physically. But the reality is, I have a ministry every day to every human being that I meet. And I look at the kingdom of God, and my wife and I, you know, because of our kids. Those of you who don't know, we now have three children. Last time we were here, I think we had one. I think I came here right around the time Benel was born. I think. That was the last time I was here. Three years ago, right? Three years ago? Yep. Four. Oh, man, so it was right before Benel was born. All right, so I've gone from zero to three in less than two years. I mean, it's been four years, but now my kids are two years old. I have two two-year-olds and a three-year-old boy. All boys. We have chaos in my house. <laughs> Draws my wife crazy, I feel for her. Okay? Because of them, we've been looking. Because we want to, you know, the Bible says, forsake not the, the, the assembling of yourselves together. Especially now as you see the day approaching. We've been looking for a church. It is very hard for me to find a church where I am comfortable and at home. Because I walk into church after church, I went to one church. Worship service was literally 15 minutes, the entire worship service. In 15 minutes, they sang three songs. All three of them were about us and how wonderful we are. The name Jesus was never used. The preacher preached, I don't even know about what, and was done in about 20 minutes, and service was over. They were trying to rush everyone out because the next service was coming in. Our services have become shorter than Catholic service. At least, I grew up Catholic as a little boy. 
At least when I was Catholic, we gave God 45 minutes. The average church has a 30-minute service now with 15 minutes of movement time to get one group out and the next group in. God deserves, listen, it's not about the hours, but God deserves more than 15. Please tell me he deserves more than 15 minutes of worship a week. By the way, most churches, I don't, I don't know what your schedule looks like. Most churches have gotten rid of the midweek service. They don't have it anymore. It's inconvenient. Why is it so inconvenient? What are people doing in the middle of the week? What are they doing? Yes, I know some people are working, but your people are not working. What are they, watching stuff on Netflix? Netflix has become more important than God to the church of Jesus Christ. That's why, like I said, Pastor, you confirmed for me. When you talked about going with pastors to visit people's houses, and a pastor has come all the way from India, and he wants to pray with the family, and there's no one available to pray. By the way, that's a lie. No one will make themselves available to pray. That's what the truth is. That's what the truth is. It's not that they weren't available. They didn't prioritize the coming of the man of God. To them it was irrelevant. Just one more visitor, mommy and daddy want to impress. And it's not just here. It's everywhere. God has become deprioritized. Why? Because we've turned God and we've turned Christianity into how to get what I want now. Jesus has become a genie in a bottle. And the problem with the prosperity gospel and the problem with the best life now and the problem with all these things is that it inoculates you against the truth. It makes you believe that Jesus exists for our happiness. Can I tell you, Jesus did not go to the cross to make you and I happy. In fact, does anyone in the room even know why Jesus went to the cross? Let me give you the top wrong answers before you say them. Because what I'm asking is the number one reason. There's a myriad of things that were accomplished at the cross. I'm not asking what was accomplished. I'm asking why did he go? Why did he go? To save lost humanity. That's a secondary reason. That's not the primary reason he went. The Bible says that everything Jesus did, he did to glorify his father. He said, I do nothing except I see the Father do it. And whatever he's doing, I do. Jesus went to the cross because the Father told him to. Jesus went in obedience because the greatest way to glorify God was in redemption. Because the glory of God's creativity had been seen in the creation of the earth. And the glory of God's power had been seen in the crushing of the rebellion of Satan. I find Satan is laughable. I kicked Satan out of heaven because he was jealous. Then why did he have to leave if Satan's so powerful? I'm tired of Christians who are scared of the devil too. That's, I'm done with that. But the church of God exists today in fear. And the church of God exists today in shambles. And the church of God exists today in division. And the church of God, remember Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. No kingdom divided against itself can stand. Part of what's turned me off to social media, and I'm really, I'll be honest, I'm really in a struggle. Having a ministry that exists only online, I need to be involved in certain social media. But I am disgusted, and it's everything in me to try and stay out of it, because I see brother turning against brother. And if you didn't get baptized this way, you're not really a Christian. And if they didn't do this, you're not really a Christian. And if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really a Christian. And if you don't do this, you're not really a Christian. And if you don't do this, you're really not really a Christian. And we spend so much time tearing each other apart. I can just see Satan laughing at it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these into the ecumenical spirit of the age and we all need to hold hands and call kumbaya. There's a whole denomination. I won't, even, I won't even consider you a brother if you're part of it. Because they just agree. They just voted. 
We're going to rewrite the Bible. We need to take male pronouns out because that's offensive to people. I mean, what if God assists gender? Stop that nonsense. He calls himself Father. He meant to be known as the Father. Jesus came to earth as a man. He came to earth as a man. Let me say that again. I'm not a woman. He wasn't transgender. He wasn't confused about who he was. He came as a man and the greatest example of manhood you will ever see. And for all the people who like to portray Jesus as sort of like this hippie running around, no, 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 no. Keep in mind, he's also one who made a scourge of cord twice and chased everyone out of the temple. Yes, he did it twice. Read John's Gospel. It is obvious he did it at the beginning of his ministry, and he did it right before he went to the cross. He did it twice. And by the way, history will tell us the tables that he was turning over were made of stone. This was a strong man. Because if the table's made of stone, even if you only turned over the tabletop, the tabletops are weighing at least 50, 60 pounds apiece. After you turn over two or three, you're going to be tired, brother, if you're not working out. Jesus was a man. And he intentionally showed himself as a man. Okay? And God intentionally meant to know himself as father. The reason why we're offended to call God father is because in our current culture, fatherhood has been so demeaned and fatherhood has been so degraded and manhood has been so erased that the idea of God as a man is laughable because men are laughable. And I thank God one of the things I like about this house and about a lot of the men that I know here is I know that you're men. You're respected in your homes. You carry a certain degree of authority, but you're not abusive. You're strong. Young men, I warn you, be very, very careful. The culture is doing everything it can to sissify you. Literally, to make you sissies and make you wimps. Everything from the way they want you to dress, some of the hairstyles they've got you wearing, be men. Yeah, it's popular with the girls. Trust me, you start being a man and women will start being impressed by you, not the little girls who you have chasing you now because you're dressing like their favorite sissy on TV. I'm getting no amens, but you know that it's true. You know that it's true. The kingdom of God is suffering violence. Not just the violence that we see when Boko Haram is capturing little girls and taking them and selling them to slavery but it's, it's suffering a type of violence that we're not only being turned against each other, but we're forgetting who our God is. Every time you would rather check your Instagram than read your Bible. By the way, can I really, really please, please beg young people in the house? Be honest with me. Be very honest with me, young people in the house. How many of you do not own a physical Bible? It's all electronic. Come on, there's got to be a couple of You all have physical Bibles. Okay, then I want to ask you to do something. One more thing. Start reading them. Put your apps away. Turn off your phones. Men especially, hear me. Young men, if you're ever going to be a husband, and you're ever going to be a father, and you're ever going to do this thing right, then you're going to be attempting to do this in a year. Set up a devotional time with God. Aside from whatever time your family may do it. Maybe you're still living in dad's house and dad says, you know, just forget about you pick your time. You do that time with the family, you pick your time. And during that time, take your phone and turn it completely off. Even if it's only 15 minutes and just read the word and pray. Our phones have weakened 
our understanding because every time we're trying to read our Bible, oh, well, wait, I got a text. Oh, wait, I got a message. Oh, wait, I got an Instagram. Oh, wait, I got the, oh, wait, someone's. Turn it off. Pull out your physical Bible and read it. Spend time with the Lord. Start letting him speak truth into your heart. Our culture is starving for men. And while, as a Malayali-speaking church, you do your best to maintain your Indian culture, and I'm about to say it's probably sacrilegious and popular, you're not in India anymore. And the culture out there is infiltrating in here, whether you think it is or not. Whether you think it is or not. Not all of that is bad. English is not a bad language. It's the number one spoken language in the world. It's the language of this in the world where English. But a lot of what's in our culture is antithetical to the gospel right now. A lot of what's in our cultural thinking is meant to make you question this word. Be careful what you let in through this door. Because you can block that door and make sure coming through that door, everyone's going to dress this way. Everyone's going to, going to sit here and you can have all these rules. But if Satan is getting in here, this is the battleground. Of, this is the battleground. This is where all spiritual warfare happens. You see, if you were truly saved, if you've been born again, you have a brand new spirit. That spirit was birthed in Christ. That spirit never sinned the first time. That spirit has no desire to sin and will never want to sin. And that spirit is as it will ever be saved. But you also live in this flesh. And no matter what you do, this flesh will always want to go back to sin. Your eyes will want to wander and look at things they shouldn't look at. Your ears will want to listen to things they shouldn't be listening to. Your body will want to do things they shouldn't. I mean, think about it. You decide tomorrow to wake up early in the morning and work out. I guarantee you, if someone leaves a donut on the counter, there'll be at least a five-minute struggle over whether you should eat the donut or go work out. Because your body wants to do what it knows is bad for it. Married men, you've been happily married 30 years. It's summertime. Pretty half-naked one boat by, and you still have to struggle to look away. Does it not because you're not saved? Not because it's your flesh. Your spirit rises up and goes, oh God, don't look. Your body rises up and says, woo. So what are you doing here is going to make the decision. If I'm renewing my mind in scripture, then my mind connects with my spirit, and the spirit and mind together overpower the body and says, no, you will not let your eyes wander, and no, you will not listen to that gossip, and no, you will not speak those damning words, and no, you will not curse your children, and no, you will not disobey your parents, and no, you will not do this, and you will not do that. But if your mind is not focused upon Jesus, and if you're filling your mind with the things of this world, then your mind will link up with your flesh and overpower your spirit every time. And you'll spend the rest of your life as the most unhappy person in the world, the most happy, the most unhappy people in the world are carnal Christians. Because every time you fulfill the lust of your flesh, you feel horrible, because then your spirit rises up and says, how could you do this to me? But when you try to do the spiritual thing, your mind says, you hypocrite. Oh, now you're going to read your Bible? You know what website you were on five minutes ago. You hypocrite. And so you can't be happy in the house of God. You can't be happy hanging out with your worldly friends. You can't be happy in the youth group. You can't be happy anywhere you go. Want to be happy? Pick a side. 
I think, I, I think Elijah said it best when he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Moses is the same thing when he came down off the mountain. And the people had given in to idolatry. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me and bring your sword. And turn it on the enemies of God. It was a hard day for Israel. Because the enemies they slayed were their own family members. Do you know why the Levites were the chosen people of God? Because when Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me and bring your sword. It was all the men of the tribe of Levi. Even the ones who had been in participating in the idolatry said, what have I done? Dropped what they were doing, ran to the Lord's side and said, what would you have me to do? And when the command came forth and said, those who will not stop, slay them. As hard as the command was, they said, I will obey even the harsh commands of God. See, it's easy to obey the easy things. If you do this, you'll be blessed. Okay, I'm going to do this so I can be blessed. What about if you do this, God's going to send you to India and all of a sudden all your career and all your education and all your dreams and your big fancy house are out the window because you're going to live in Carroll the rest of your life and they don't pay as much there as they pay here. But if God is calling you, you need to go. Whatever God tells you to do, you need to do it. Our life is not about the pursuit of our happiness. Our lives are made happy as we pursue God. Trust me, listen, I'm a living example of this. There are plenty of times that I've thrown opportunity for comfort and ease and wealth out the window. And anyone who knows me will know. Listen, I know what David meant when he said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor God's seed begging bread. I've lived rich and poor. I've lived in huge homes and small ones. I've learned to get along in either situation. I'm not impressed. I'm not chasing after things anymore. I've reached that point in my life where the greatest thing, my greatest concern in life, can I tell you one of my greatest concerns in life are right now? Number one, pleasing my wife. I know you all thought, oh, wait, you have to pick. No. Because see, my relationship with my wife is an example of Christ's relationship with the church. And if I can't do that right, all my preaching is in vain. If I bring my wife Sunday morning to service, and she looks haggard and beat down and tired. And you women pull her aside and she talks about what a horrible man I am and never available. All my preaching became worth nothing. So number one priority. To be given, to love her the way Christ loved the church and give myself for her. Priority number one. Priority number two. To leave a legacy, not just through my three sons. In the midst of the present culture, I wouldn't raise them to be men of God. They're little boys now, but they weren't born to be little boys. They weren't born to be babies. They're made to be men. Through my raising of them, through the preaching of the gospel, through everything I do, I'm concerned now about legacy. By the way, anyone, any man in the room over 40 knows what I'm talking about. Something happens after 40. Trust me, I'm not going to die anytime soon that I know of. If the Lord tarries, I'm going to be around for quite a while. I'm not afraid of death either. But my concern now is for legacy. Not will a thousand people be at my, be at my funeral and cry tears. Will there be a glorious crowd of witnesses gathered around me at the day that I'm called home? Because the crowns that we have to cast at Christ's feet are the people we brought into the body. And I'm worried, will I have multiplied myself enough? I'm worried. That will all my crowns be based on the first 20 years of my walking with Christ. No, some of you listen, older guys.
That's your problem, older men and women. Some of you sit comfortably on what you did 20 years ago. Thank you for your service. Thank you for the men you, you mentored. Thank you for the women you mentored. Thank you for singing in the choir. Thank you for serving the church. Thank you for serving as the custodian. Thank you for all those things you did 20 years ago. But what are you going to do today? As long as you still have breath in your life, you need to pray someone into the kingdom. You need to preach to somebody. You need to mentor somebody. Those of you who are old enough that you are actually thinking about death, who will carry on your ministry in this earth? I'm not an ordained minister. We already covered that. That is not your ministry. Pastors even. Standing in this pulpit is not your ministry, and your pastors know it, because 90% of their job is done in the wee hours of the night. It's the praying you do all night. It's the counseling you do. It's the people you're trying to take care of. It's the visitations at the hospital. It's the hours on your knees praying for the people who won't pray for themselves. That's your ministry, and who's going to do that when you're dead? Who have you trained to be a prayer warrior? Well, I went to a prayer meeting. No. Who have you trained how to pray? Who have you trained how to preach? Who have you trained how to be a good mother? Who have you trained how to be a good dad? Oh, I hope by watching me, no, do more. See, that's what I meant when I said birth is complicated. The kingdom of God is suffering because half the people in it are not really in they're physically here. They've never been born again because we didn't take the time to disciple them. Jesus never said go into all the world and make converts. He said make disciples. And making disciples is tiring. It's hard. Sometimes it's thankless. Come on, men and women of God. Come on, how many of you have mentored people and you, can't, you don't even know where they are today? They won't even call you to say hello. And yet you don't regret it. Because at the end of the day, you didn't do it for yourself. You, did it, you didn't even do it for them. You did it for God's glory. And as long as they're out there, listen, I'm a young man. I was very happy for him and very hurt partially, I'm going to be honest, at the same time. But I'm one of the young men. I spent years mentoring. He's in ministry today. And he'll tell people. Because Pete told us. He got married recently. I never, and, he got, and he came to New York to do it. Got married 30 minutes from my home. I was not even invited. And you know what? After I had my little pity party for about five minutes, I said, you know, who cares? He's a good husband today. He's a good, well, he's not a father yet. He will be. I know he's going to be a great father. He's a minister of the gospel. He's working with young people. He's bringing the kingdom of God down to earth throughout the state of Colorado. You know what? I don't care. I didn't do it for me. I did it for God. And if God's getting glory, I'm good. Step away. But see, that's messy. Discipleship is messy because you're going to have to pour yourself into people, some of whom will be thankful and some of them won't. By the way, any of you, come on, be honest. Ever disciple someone and after years of discipling, figure out this is never going to work? They're not in it. They don't love God. And it broke your heart. It's messy business. Some of the people you're going to pour yourself into won't love you back. Some of the people you're going to pour yourself into will not get saved. But can I let you in on a secret? Paul said, listen, one water, one planted." God gets the glory. I know people, in fact, there's one young woman, I was thinking about this woman. Her name is Jasmine. The reason why I was thinking about Jasmine 
is because we were in high school together. She was one year ahead of me. She was, we were together in high school for three years. She was saved, like, if she's not saved, I don't know who is. She was one of these people, everything she talked about was Jesus, 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 Jesus. We ended up going to the same college. So we were in high school together for three years, college together for three years. She spent six years pouring herself into trying to get me to go to church, trying to get me to get saved, trying to get me. Jasmine has no idea today that I'm saved, has no idea that I'm preaching the gospel. In her mind, she may have wasted six years. I have an uncle who spent two and a half years. He worked long, 14, 15 hour days, and at least once a week, on the weekends, would come and spend anywhere from two to four hours till three in the morning after having worked all day and gotten no sleep. He was tormented by demons for trying to preach to me. By the way, if you're saying, what do you mean? I'm talking serious. He woke up one night. His, his wife told me about this because she's at my aunt. He's actually my uncle by marriage. My aunt told me. She woke up one night and she was in shock. He was bleeding from his mouth. He had to get himself deep of it. He was laying still and bleeding. And every now and again, just convulsing. And she began to pray and woke him up. And he started screaming as he awoke. He didn't know he was physically hurt. He said that he had seen and dreamed he was surrounded by, he said they have to be deemed these creatures were horribly ugly. And they just kept beating him in the mouth until stop talking to this kid. And we will leave you alone. The conversation they had that night, my aunt, that's my aunt, told her husband, stop, leave Pete alone. We don't need this. You know what he did? The next week, he was back at that kitchen table. And by the way, I was an arrogant individual. This while I was in college. I thought my education, because of where I went to school, made me better than all the people who tried to preach to me. So I ripped apart his beliefs, and I threw everything from psychology and science and Darwin and everything at him. He just kept coming. And he didn't have my education, and he didn't have, but he had this love of God. And most people would have said he wasted two years of his life. But Uncle Raymond had not poured into me. I'm perhaps not standing here before you today. So I'm here to tell you, listen, preach the gospel. Go out. The kingdom of God is falling apart. But when Jesus said that the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force, he literally meant that there are certain men who are so anxious, so on fire, so desperate, that they are willing to do every reasonable and every unreasonable thing to take hold of this kingdom and its promises. I want to resurrect the violent men again. Not the way our culture talks about violence. That would be antithetical to everything Christ was. But violence in the biblical sense. Jesus was relentless in his love. By the way, you know the greatest example of Jesus' relentless pursuit of the lost person is to me? Watch Jesus interacting with Judas. I'll blow your mind. Some of you have never noticed this if you read your Bible. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, most of us figured out Judas was there. Jesus washed his feet. When Jesus broke bread and celebrated the Last Supper, Judas was there. Does anyone in the room know what it meant when Jesus dipped the bread into the sauce and handed it to Judas? Anyone in the room know enough about Mediterranean culture to you know what he was doing? 
See, we all go, aha, he was letting John know who the man was. That's not why he did it. In Mediterranean, how many of you ever heard the expression, you are what you eat? Right? You are what you eat. So if you and I eat from the same thing, we are one. So in Mediterranean culture, if I had offended Sophie, Sophie did something to me and we were, we're not speaking. I went to his home. But we got together. Someone invited us to work dinner together. I would dip my bread into sauce and give it to him. By the way, what you don't realize from the scripture, this is bread that Jesus not only broke, this is bread Jesus had been eating. So Jesus had been eating it, stopped eating his food, broke off a piece, dipped in his sauce and gave it to him. What is he saying? You're still one. You don't have to do what you're about to do. I still love you. And by the way, you only did that for the most honored person in the house. Gentlemen, your father, who's been in India for the last 40 years while you've been raising a family and came to visit, you would break that bread and give it to him. He's the most honored man in the house. He gave Judas the highest position of honor. He was literally begging Judas, don't do what you're doing. Now, Jesus, knowing all things, knew Jesus, that Judas was going to betray him. Knowing Judas would, be, would betray him, he still washed his feet, he still showed him love, he still fed him, and he still kept his sin private. Because notice Jesus says to him, go and do what you're set in your heart to do. Go do what you have to do. Right? The disciples start arguing. It says they argue about what Judas was going to do. And some of them thought probably he was going to prepare a place. Jesus never corrected them. They, he let them think Judas is left to build the next part of the ministry and go prepare us for place for tomorrow. He honors him. He hid his sin from the multitude. Because birthing people into the kingdom is messy. Not everyone is going to get saved. Not everyone is going, but brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God has been infiltrated. The enemy is not at the gate. The gates are burned down. We're living in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. The gates are burned down. And we lack people to stand in the gap. By the way, for those of you who ever wondered, that's where that standing in the gap expression comes from. It's an ancient Israeli custom. When the walls of a city were down, the bravest and best of your fighting men would volunteer to stand in the gap at nighttime and watch for an enemy. Notice. An individual man, in case an army comes, I will face an army alone. No one comes into the city. No one touches these families. That's why when Nehemiah and Ezra had been building a wall, when Nehemiah told them to build the wall, he told them what? Each man should build near where his family is so it's personal. They get through that wall, your children are dying. And you're to build with one hand and hold your sword in the other. And nobody gets through our walls. And there will be trumpeters stationed. And at each station, the trumpeters will hug you, trumpet in one hand and build with the other. And if the enemy comes while your brother is fighting, you blow the trumpet and we all go where we hear it. But who's sounding the trumpet today? Who's willing to say, that the kingdom of God is in trouble. Now at the end of the day, we know that it's not. 
At the end of the day, God knows how to rule his house. At the end of the day, the second Adam is not like the first Adam. He knows how to steward over his bride. The church will make it to glory. But will we be the generation that presented to, church, to, to the Christ a church with spots and blemishes and wrinkles and damage? Will you rise up and be the generation that says, not, not on my watch? Not on my watch. I will not go silently in the, into the night. I will not lay down my sword. I will not rest on the comfort of my salvation. I will concern myself with the brothers and sisters around me. I will concern myself with the young people behind me. I will concern myself with those ahead of me. Young people, hear me. When I was in college, I pledged the fraternity. I had an interesting, I had a couple of really, really interesting beliefs that I still cling to, believe it or not, as a Christian. One of them is something they call push-pull. The concept of push-pull for alpha men is that always in life there are those ahead of you. And always in life there are those behind you. And if we are going to succeed as a people, then we push those who are ahead of us ahead. We never try to pull them down. But we also turn back and give a hand to at least one or two behind us and pull them up. I want to encourage you to push and to pull. You look around this room, there are men, there are women who in their spiritual journey, they're ahead of you. Don't hate on them, don't get jealous. Push them to go deeper. Push them to go farther. Lift up the hands that hang down. How many of you, don't answer right away, pray for your pastor daily, daily, Every hand should go up. Now watch. Some of you in the house would even stay under your breath. Well, you don't know, Pastor. I'm under, I got enough trouble just praying for my family. Whatever trouble you see, I guarantee you he sees double because he stands in the gap between your enemies and you. Lift up the hands that hang down. Did you know that in the United States of America, I believe, the, I believe it's now 600 a week or 600 a month, 600 people leave full-time ministry completely. Pastors just resign. By the way, pastors in the room, because I have a couple, let me tell you something. Stop preparing for retirement. Please stop that. You may retire from a particular congregation. If you are a man of God, you never stop. This never ends. I have no retirement plan. In fact, it's interesting. The minute I got ordained, there was an organization that contacted me. They help ministers prepare for retirement. I said, whatever in life do you make? And they talk about how they leave the money away and there's certain tax shelters that are made just for pastors and blah, blah, blah. So you did. No, 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 no. Listen, I intend, in fact, the most glorious death I could die would be if somewhere in my 90s should the Lord tarry, I just drop dead in the pulpit somewhere still doing what I'm doing right now. If I could die like one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Clint Dennett, after years of serving the Lord and establishing the school of Christ all over the earth, he became deathly ill. This man had been sick multiple times and just rebuked death and kept living. Finally, it was his time to go home. Within a week, seven different forms of cancer had racked his body. He knew he was going to die. One of the, the last day of his life, 
He had sent several men out to establish the school of Christ, missionaries in different parts of the world. They came back because they heard he was dying. And he was very ill. He gathered the strength, pulled himself out of bed, and asked for a report. And when he heard what was going on, and he heard about lives being changed, he heard about revival, he lifted up his hand and said, revival has come. And all the people who had gathered to sort of pay their respects, he started the prayer meeting. And they went to prayer and worship and prayer and worship and prayer and worship till somewhere, I believe, around 2 or 3 in the morning. Two in the three, around 2 or 3 in the morning, his weary body just couldn't stand it anymore. He grabbed his wife who he'd been married to for, I believe, about 70 years. They were, they were married a good long time. I know it was over 50. They got married very young. And he held her and said his goodbyes and told her how much he loved her. And she told him, he said, honey, we've beaten death before. And he looked her in the eye and said, I'm sorry, honey, but not this time. I'm going home. He called the men around and ordained them. You may already be ordained to ministry, but let them know you're going to finish this part of ministry. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. He called his children around, prayed over them, anointed them, blessed his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, looked up to heaven and said, Father, I'm ready, and in an instant was gone. There is such a thing as a glorious death. But you can't earn that death on your deathbed. You're earning it now. Work for the kingdom. Build the kingdom. Fight for the kingdom. Be those violent men that Jesus talks about who are willing to do every reasonable and unreasonable. See, the problem with the church today, we become too reasonable. I'm going to end with this thought. Yeah, I need to end. I'm going to end with this thought. We've become too reasonable. We've become too organized. Do every reasonable and unreasonable thing to see this kingdom advance. So I don't have a big altar call. And those of you who know me and know my type of ministry, usually I do. Usually I do. In fact, my favorite part of any meeting is the ministry we do at the altar. But tonight, I want to do something a little different. Because you see, if I called you and said, who would answer that call to fight for the kingdom? I believe almost everyone would stand, almost everyone would come forward. I want you to take what you've heard tonight home. And I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Am I right now doing everything for the kingdom God has called me to do? Am I right now being Everything I can be for the kingdom. By the way, those of you who are married, begin to assess your marriage. Are you the husband you're supposed to be? By the way, I'm not even going to challenge the wives and the wife you're supposed to be. Because it's a weird thing. That's actually our responsibility. I have learned my wife is the best wife in the world when I'm lined up right with God. When I'm lined up right with God, I don't have to ask. I don't have to fight over anything. Because she's a woman of God. She'll follow God. But when I'm not following Him, we're not getting along as well. Arguments are starting. So I put that responsibility on me. Are you being the husband you're supposed to be? Are you being the father, the mother? Are you being the son, the daughter? Think about your job. 
Paul several times talked about your work being part of the kingdom. I don't care whether you're an accountant, a nurse, does the glory of God go into your workplace with you when you go? Engineer, mechanic, custodian, fry cook at Burger King. Does the glory of God enter your workplace? Students, is it in your school? By the way, why don't you make a promise to yourself, students? How many times have you told yourself, come on, especially back when you were a freshman, I'm going to a new school, and I'm going to set that place on fire. You've been there three years, and it's not. You've got one year left. I defy you. Don't be a hypocrite this year. Set the place on fire. Spiritual fire. Spiritual fire. Okay. If this was your last year at your job, gentlemen, if the Lord is going to call you home this year, Ladies, if the Lord is going to call you home this year, if this is your last year in class, your last year on your job, your last year as a son or a daughter to your parents, how would you live? What would you do this year differently if this is the last? For most of you, something came into mind you need to get prior to the case. It's a challenge. It's a night. That's all we're not going to go to. We're going to go home and wrestle with these things. Who promised you that more than this coming year? Who promised you you have tomorrow morning to wake up? Tomorrow's not promised to any of us. And young people, let me tell you something. Before you look around and look for the grandmothers and grandfathers in the room, do you know that anyone in the room over the age of 40 has a greater probability of making it to 80 than an 18-year-old ever have seen 35? Because more people are buried between the ages of 18 and 35 than are married than are buried between the ages of 15 and 80. So every time you say that, stop looking at the old people. Tomorrow's not promised to you. If this was your last year, what would you do? If this was your last year to sing in the choir, how would you sing? What songs would you sing? Choir music directors. If this was your last year, what songs would you say? You need to stop singing that. That's nothing to do with the glory of God. What would you bring? Pastors. If God told you this is it. At this time next year, when you preach your absolute last sermon, what would these last 52 sermons look like? You've got 52 left and then you're gone. What would they look like? Live with that level of purpose. Live with that level of passion. Live that way. So I want you to go home tonight and I want you to accept. This really was my last year, but I changed. And then ask, why are you not changing? Why are you not changing? By the way, even areas of your health. If the doctor told you, look, you change this, the next year at this time you'll be dead. What would you change about your life? What would you change? I'm picking on that because that's part of it also. This is physical exercise from its limits. It also says that it does have a problem in that it keeps me living longer. If I keep myself healthy, I can be a bad woman. Stronger, I can pick my boys up and play with them instead of being the dad of the home that has no energy left for his kids. Some of you have no energy left when you get home, not because you have work so hard. Job is that hard stuff. Life in peace makes us weak. That's why those of you, some of you in the room, you're a lot of young people, your generation is a generation that goes to mind. 
work for the enemy. They've been mended and restored because they've been raised in your time. Jesus made us strong. And the time for us to get that violence back in is to give a new enemy in you. When we flipped it on him, we knew how to hear. We didn't change things. Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.